0: When I was in Kenya about a month ago, I was over someone's house, we were talking a little bit about Christmas and uh, their, their understanding of Christmas is largely colored by American movies and so the, the question she wanted to ask me is, do you actually have a Christmas tree in your house? Like You, you cut down a tree, you put it in your house and, and a dead, dying tree is in your house for the next month? I was like, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful tradition. Uh, Talking to her, though, made me realize, Christmas trees, whether you put up a fake plastic tree in your house or you cut down a living tree and stand it up in your house, Christmas trees are a bit of a strange tradition. We cut down a tree, it's perfectly fine, We, we stand up that tree in our home, we give it some water, we wrap it in light, and then we try to keep it from dying for the next three, four, five weeks. And man can do that. We can, we can take a dying tree and we can prolong its death for a few weeks. Maybe, if you, if you get the miracle grow stuff, we can, we can keep it alive for a month. But you know what we can't do? We can't restore that tree to life. We can't bring back its color from brown to green. We can sweep up the needles that fall on the floor, but we can't replace its needles as its branches grow increasingly bare. We can give it some water, we can put it to a stand, but we we can't reconnect it to its roots. We can't restore a Christmas tree to life. And I begin with the Christmas tree this morning because I think it illustrates what we can and can't do in all of life. We can prolong death with all of our medical technology, with all of our medical advances. We can prolong death, but we can't secure life. We can feed the hungry, but we can't end hunger. We can build a home, but rest eludes us. We can turn on the lights each night, but the darkness is still there. It's just pushed to the edges a little bit more. We can spread Christmas cheer. Again, the message of all of our Christmas movies. Just spread some Christmas cheer in this season. And, And maybe we can do that for a few weeks. But we can't stop sorrow. Can't bring lasting joy. We live in a cursed world. We live, Paul tells us in Romans 8, in a creation subjected to frustration. Where wombs are barren and birth is hard, Genesis 3.16. Thorns and thistles bloody our hands as we labor to bring forth fruit from the ground, Genesis 3.18. And where death devours us and everyone we love until it returns us to the dust. Genesis 3.19. We live in a world under judgment, a world in need of restoration, with hunger that bread can't satisfy, with sin that sinners can't undo, with emptiness that creation can't fill, in ruins that we can't restore. What we need is for someone to do what mere man cannot do. What we need is for someone to restore us from curse to blessing, to comfort every grief forever. Not to give a hug that makes us feel a little bit better for a few moments, but to to end it, to take the sorrow away and just leave us with comfort. What we need is for someone to fill our emptiness, to bind up our wounds, to buy back our lost inheritance. To devour death, which devours us, and to crush the dragon's head. What we need, again, I mentioned joy to the world last week, and we feel it, don't we? What we need is for someone to bless us as far as the curse is found and beyond. What we need is a redeemer, a saving son through whom God can do what we cannot. A saving son through whom God can restore his people to his blessing. That's what these series of sermons on the birth of promised sons is all about. All about this reality that we live in a world of sin and judgment. And we need someone, someone from God to restore us to blessing. And each of these birth stories is is a snapshot, a, a prophetic snapshot of the coming king. And to this need, the book of Ruth, with all of its different questions, with all of its different narratives, with all of its different events and characters, proclaims one message to our need. Praise the Lord. In this world of curse and judgment, praise the Lord. Why? Because he has not left us this day without a Redeemer. On one level, the book of Ruth is the simple account of a single Israelite woman whom God restores through the birth of a redeeming son, Naomi. On one level, this book is Naomi's story. We we begin with Naomi, we end with Naomi. But the book's history, like I think all the history in the Old Testament, in one way or another, is not ultimately about the past. Taylor preached on this Wednesday night from Psalm 68. The constant hope of the Old Testament historian is that the same God who did this in the past will do it again in the future in a greater way. The book of Ruth is not just about the life of Naomi. It's not about just what happened in the past. What the Lord did in the life of this woman, Naomi... The author of Ruth expected him to do in a greater way for all his people. Naomi's story in Ruth is just the preface to our story. If you don't believe me with that, look at chapter 4. Look at verses uh, 18 to 22, I think it is. The book ends with a genealogy. It's the the only book uh, in the Bible where uh, the linear genealogy comes at the end of the book. Right? In the book of Genesis, these linear genealogies, father has a son, father has a son, introduces us to the promised son, and then the story runs forth from there. It's like a chapter heading. And, and here in Ruth 4, the genealogy is a chapter heading bringing us to David. And the way that helps us to understand the book is that all that happens to Naomi is actually just the preface to a much greater restoration. The genealogy at the end of this book proclaims Naomi's restoration is just a foretaste of a greater restoration God has now begun to accomplish through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the main message of the book. Two sentences. We live in a cursed world in need of restoration. But the Lord has not left us without a Redeemer to restore us to his blessing. I'll read that one more time. We live in a cursed world in need of restoration, but the Lord has not left us without a redeemer to restore us to his blessing. And the the structure of the book, if we look at chapter 1, is all about the need for restoration. Naomi leaves Bethlehem full. She comes back empty-handed. She needs restoration. She needs to be restored to blessing. And the rest of the book, chapters 2 to 4, is all about the God who restores her to himself through the Redeemer. Let's begin then in Ruth 1. Open your Bibles from Ruth 4 to Ruth 1. I'll read the first five verses. Look there with me. In the days of the judging of the judges, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem of Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem of Judah. They went into the country of Moab and they remained there. And Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, Died. And she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves, they grabbed for themselves Moabite women. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. And both Mahlon and Kilion died. And the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. It's a dark beginning. Maybe, maybe the darkest beginning to any book in the scriptures. Verse 1 provides the setting for the story. In the days when the judges ruled, or in the days of the judging of the judges, there was a famine in the land. The author communicates to us broadly a, a few realities as we approach the story. First, Even in the grammar of the passage, the story is communicated to us not as a fantasy, not as a fiction. This is history. This story happened in a particular time, the days of the judges. The story begins in a particular place, the the land, the land promised to the patriarchs, the land at least partially inherited by the nation of Israel. This story is history. It happened, happened in our world, happened in our history with people and participants who tread the same earth that we ourselves now tread, and whose bones now inhabit the same ground ours will one day inhabit, and with the God of Israel, whom we now worship in our Lord Jesus Christ. This story, then, is about our world, about our history, about us. If I could just apply that very simple fact to remind us what we're doing when we read the Bible. We read the Bible not to escape reality. So so many of our pursuits that are aimed at rest in the midst of judgment, rest in the midst of a world that's cursed, so many of those pursuits are merely about escaping from this world. But the joy of Bible reading is that this book, it's not a Disney world that tells us to plaster on a, a smile and pretend like nothing's wrong in the world. This book doesn't escape, doesn't lead us to escape from the world. We read this book, we find a real account of our world. It explains our world to us. It tells us what's happening in this world. Setting is the days of the judges. Setting is the land. And we find in verse 1, look there with me, not just that it's the days of the judges, and not just that we're in the promised land, but there is a famine in the land. And so from the outset, the author is telling us this story as a story about restoration. This narrative, is, it doesn't begin once upon a time or in a galaxy far, far away. This story begins in the ruins, the ruins of this world, because the author wants to prepare us to receive this story as a story about being restored from the ruins, The book of Ruth begins in dark days with no king in a promised land under judgment. Dark days with no king in a promised land under judgment. These are the days of the judges, Judges 21-25, where everyone did what was right in his own eyes. One of the worst stories in the book of Judges, maybe the worst story in the book of Judges, I won't go into it, begins in Judges 19, 19 to 21, a, a Levite with a concubine, and where is she from? Bethlehem of Judah. You can go home and read the story on your own, but the author wants us to understand this story is happening in days that are crying out for a king, a champion to conquer, a son to save, a ruler to reign and to bless. It's not just the kinglessness of the judges. Look at verse 1. The story happens in the land, the promised land, the inheritance of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where God promised to set up a new Eden for their descendants, a place where he might bless them and they might worship him. We, We read a description of this land in Deuteronomy 7. He will love you, bless you, multiply you. He will bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds, the young of your flock. In the land that He swore to your fathers to give to you, you shall be blessed above all peoples. That's where our story begins in that land, in that promised land, with this God who delights to bless His people. But the story doesn't begin with blessing. Look at verse 1. There's a famine. A famine in the land. The the point we need to understand here is that when there's a famine in the promised land, so I'm not arguing this broadly. Famine in the world today doesn't necessarily mean that the people in that particular place sinned, and so they're now under judgment. But famine in the Old Testament, in the promised land, under the covenant with Moses, certainly mean that. This is the promised land. This is the place of blessing. But there's a famine in the land. There's no food. We read in Leviticus 26. The Lord tells his people, when you sin, I'm going to send enemies to oppress you. And if you don't listen, that's the story of Judges, right? Again and again, people of Israel abandon the Lord as their king. He sends in the enemies to oppress them. They cry out to the Lord for deliverance. He saves them. But what would happen if they didn't listen to that pattern. Leviticus 26. I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze and your strength shall be spent in vain. For your land shall not yield its increase and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. This land in Ruth 1 is now one that the Lord has cursed. This is the setting for our story. Kinglessness curse in other words the book of Ruth begins in the ruins of sin and judgment this book of Ruth begins in a land and among a people in need of that promised king to restore them to God's blessing Eve's seed to crush the serpent Abraham's offspring to bless the nation Judah's lion to reign and to bless Ruth 1 1 reveals God's promised son still has not come and so here in ruth 1 1 we find the people of god enslaved by sin dominated by darkness devoured by death under god's judgment and then as we keep reading in verse one we meet a man a man from bethlehem of judah with a wife and two sons and perhaps we begin to ask could he be the promised son? We, we have this context of sin and judgment. We know that God has promised a, a redeemer to restore his people. Could this man, his name means Elimelech, my God is king. He, he has sons. Could his son be the next blessing bringer? Could they be the ones to restore God's people to God's blessing? Our questions need not go very far. Our hope, so dim after one sentence in this story, need not labor to rise. Because we meet this man, look at verse 1, as he flees to Moab. You see it there? These are days of kinglessness and curse, days of sin and judgment, days that cry out for mercy and blessing from the Lord. And where does this man look for life? In the God of Israel. You say, Nate, there's a famine in the land. Of course he's got to go somewhere. Don't you remember the wilderness? Does Elimelech look for life in the God of Israel who fed his people with manna, bread from heaven in the wilderness? In his word, which is better than bread, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Does this man look for life in the Lord's past faithfulness to his fathers or future promises to his sons? No, the man flees Bethlehem, the house of bread. He forsakes the land, the place of promise, and he chooses exile among his enemies. You hear the name Moab, you ought to understand these are enemies to the people of God. When Israel's wandering through the wilderness, they need bread and water. Do you know what the Moabites did? They didn't provide them with food. They didn't provide them with water. They hired a prophet to curse them. And the God of Israel took that curse and he turned it into a blessing. This is Elimelech's history. And yet he's looking for life, looking for refuge in the midst of the curse. Rather than the Lord who turns his enemy's curse into a blessing, he's fleeing to the land of his enemies, fleeing from the Lord a very brief moment of application brothers and sisters where do you look for refuge as the weight of the curse presses upon you where do you look for life in this world of sin and judgment do you live by faith in the promises of God do you remember the Lord who loves to sustain his people through the darkness, to give us rest in our wandering, to feed us with Christ the bread from heaven. Do, do your eyes wander? Do your, does your heart wander to the sins that you once trusted in, the idols you once looked to? Elimelech flees the land with his family, but the darkness grows deeper. You can see it in verse 3. Look at verse 3, you can see it in verse 5. We get these two parallel patterns, and you you see the result of them in verse 3 and verse 5. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she's left with her two sons. And then verse 5, Mothlon and Kilion both died, and the woman is left without her two lads and her husband. This man sought life in Moab, but death devoured him. These sons grabbed for comfort in the women of Moab, but curse cut them off. And the woman, Naomi, is left in exile amid the ruins of their sin and God's judgment. No husband to shepherd her, no sons to sustain her, no redeemer to restore her. She is a remnant left over, Like a burnt out stump from the fires of judgment. And apart from mercy, apart from grace, the story would end right there. But Naomi, as she's in the fields of Moab, hears good news. Look at verse six. She doesn't hear that the people of Israel had discovered a new farming technique to earn bread for themselves. She doesn't hear that the people of Israel had somehow obeyed and restored themselves to God's blessing. No, she hears in the fields of Moab, look at verse 6, that the Lord had intervened in power and mercy to overcome the curse, to restore His people to His blessing, finishing the famine by giving them food. And so what does Naomi do? She's in Moab. There's been no refuge for her in Moab. She gets on the road with her daughters-in-law. She goes back to Bethlehem. But even as she's on the way back to Bethlehem, her words reveal the extent of her emptiness. Her daughters in law, Orpah and Ruth, in love and faithfulness, want to return with her to the Lord and to the land. But look at verses 11 to 14. Look at what she says to them Turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back. Go back. To Moab. I'm too old to have a husband. And, and even if this very night I should, I should have a husband and bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you stop yourself from marrying? No, my daughters. It's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. I hope you understand Naomi's point. Naomi's point is that there's no hope left in me, there's no hope for rest no hope for blessing, no hope for anything left in me. And even if they were to object, Naomi, aren't you the daughter of Sarah? Aren't you the daughter of Rebecca? How many times has God brought forth a promised son? She says, even if I could bear sons, what are they going to do for you? There's no sons left for me. Naomi's no cut-down Christmas tree with a little life left to live and a little light left to give. She's a stump. I don't know about you, but when I've gone out to buy Christmas trees, I see people looking through the trees. And if you're late enough, you might even see people looking through half-dead trees, right? Man can do something with a Christmas tree, even if it's closer to death than another Christmas tree. We'll still buy it, take it home put it up in our house. But I've never seen any man, any woman, any family by the stump. No one. Not even in Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown Christmas tree, it's not a Charlie Brown stump. We can't do anything with a tree stump. That's Naomi's point. This family is a stump cut off by God's judgment. The men are dead. The woman is old and empty, the family is finished. Cut off by sin, ruined by judgment, buried beyond hope, look at verse 13, by the Lord's own almighty hand. This family needs restoration. Their land needs redemption. Their men need resurrection. But Naomi has nothing left to provide. No promised son to give, The Lord has ruined her, she says, in judgment, ruined her beyond restoration, ruined her beyond mercy or hope. This problem becomes, by the end of chapter 1, the central problem of this book. And we might even say the central charge of this book. Naomi states it herself most clearly for us in the heart of Bethlehem before the women of the town. Look at verses 18 to 21. Naomi and Ruth, don't miss that, return to Bethlehem. And you can imagine sticking a stick in a beehive and and swirling it around. What happens? The bees start buzzing. That's what Naomi's return does to the town of Bethlehem. She's been gone for longer than ten years She walks into the town and and the town is stirred up, the author of Ruth says. And and the women of the town, you, you can imagine Ruth and Naomi walking down the main avenue of Bethlehem and the women of the town hanging out of their windows and their doors, squinting their eyes, saying, Could this be Naomi? Is she back? She's returned from exile, like life from the dead. But look at what Naomi says in verses 20 to 21. If any of them is about to worship God and say, thanks be to God, he's brought you home. Look at what she says in verses 20 to 21 of chapter 1. Do not call me Naomi. The name means kindness. Maybe was even an an abbreviation for something like the kindness of the Lord. I hope you get the point. Naomi, by her parents, was named Naomi as a sign of the Lord's faithfulness, a sign of the Lord's kindness, a sign of the Lord's mercy. She says in verse 20, that's not my name anymore. Call me Mara. Bitterness. Look at me. Look at me and taste bitterness in your mouth. Why? Because the Almighty has caused great bitterness for me. Here's the central charge of the book. I left full, Naomi says. And the Lord has returned me emptied. Why are you calling me Naomi? The Lord has condemned me. I think the ESV says testified against me. It's the Lord has condemned me. He's witnessed against me. The Almighty has brought calamity, disaster, destruction upon me. According to Naomi, her return is no restoration. If she's back, it's only as the walking dead. She refuses to be seen as a sign of the Lord's mercy. Her new name proclaims, Behold, the judgment of the Lord. See the ruin that he has wrought. See the severity of his justice. Look at what the Lord has done to me. This doesn't feel like a Christmas sermon, or maybe it does. I wonder, church, have we forgotten why Christmas is necessary? And have we yet learned the lesson of our trees? Christmas declares the depth of our need. Christmas reminds us that we live in a cursed world in need of restoration. And the best man can do, with all our power, All our plans, all our wisdom is to delay death for a little while, to stand up a dying tree in our homes, to wrap it in light, to wait for its death. But we cannot bring the blessing. We cannot restore the ruins. The need is too great, the emptiness too desolate, the darkness too deep. We read in Revelation 5, who, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? That's, that's the question. Who is going to restore the earth? Who's going to make all things new? What happens? Silence. Why? Because there's no one found worthy in heaven above or on the earth below or even in the seas who is worthy to restore these ruins. And in this world, this world of kinglessness and curse, This creation ruined by sin and judgment. Naomi, now Mara, bitterness, refuses to allow us to overlook one simple fact the Lord has done this. I want to explain carefully here. Man is responsible, means matter, secondary causes exist, sin has consequences. But Naomi's lament declares, the Lord is ultimate, sovereign. Kids, what did you learn this morning? He is the just judge who does what? It's loud so I can hear you. He is the just judge who judges justly. If we are tempted to read Naomi's lament in Ruth 21 and say, no, 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 Naomi, the Lord hasn't done this to you. Consider what scripture says the Lord has done. I used to try to avoid this truth by talking about the curse only in the passive voice. I remember writing a paper once on the narrative of Scripture, Genesis 1-3, and saying, just, the world was cursed. Genesis 3-17, who curses the ground? The Lord. The Lord cursed the ground because of Adam's sin, but the Lord cursed the ground. Genesis 7-4, the Lord wiped out the world with water because of man's evil. Genesis 19-13, he consumed Sodom with fire. Exodus 12-29, he killed Egypt's firstborn sons. Jeremiah 9 11, his wrath ruined Jerusalem. Romans 1.24, 11.32, he gave up man to sin's enslaving sway. Genesis 3.19, Romans 6.23, he decreed that death would devour. Ruth one twenty one. he ultimately, Elimelech's responsible, the judges of the judging, probably used means, but ultimately Naomi's right. He... Emptied Naomi. My summaries of scripture aren't enough for you. Let me just read a couple verses from scripture. Lamentations 3. Talking about the Lord. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. Job 1.21. The Lord gave. And even though he works through means. Even though he works through Satan and natural events in Job one. This is what Job says, and the author tells us he didn't sin by saying this. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Psalm 88, your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. Isaiah 45, I form light, and I create darkness. I make well-being, and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Ruth 121: "I left full. The Lord has returned me empty. We live amid the ruins because God has cursed this world in His justice and righteousness. And let me be clear, it's not as though we are collateral damage. I remember when my grandfather was going through cancer? He had lung cancer. At one point, they turned to radiation. And and I remember sitting at the table with him. He can't eat. Why? Because the radiation aimed at at the cancer cells also burned the healthy cells in his esophagus. Brothers and sisters, we are not the healthy cells by nature. Man is not the healthy cell caught as collateral damage in God's wrath against sin. Man... Not by creation, but now in Adam, is the cancer, Romans 3.9. We are by nature, Ephesians 2.3, children of wrath. Because of man's sins, the wrath of God is coming, Colossians 3.6. We don't just need restoration this morning. By nature in Adam, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve to be restored to God's blessing. And for Ruth, or sorry, for Naomi and Ruth one twenty-one, that's the extent of the story. Her bitterness blinds her. She sees only one aspect of the truth of the glory of the Lord, Exodus 34.6. He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the guilt of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. We live in a world That the Lord has cursed because of our sin, because of Adam's fall, and none of us can or deserve to be restored to God's blessing. But the wonderful thing about the book of Ruth is that's the end of chapter one. Actually, it's not the end of chapter one, it's almost the end of chapter one. Brothers and sisters, this is your God, He is the God who judges. But Micah seven eighteen, he's also the God who pardons iniquity and passes over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. In other words, we live in a world of ruin and judgment with a God who will most certainly judge justly. But for his people... For those he has set his love upon before creation itself began, he delights not to end in judgment, but to freely and mercifully restore us to his blessing. Not because we deserve it, not because we've clawed our ways out of curse into blessing, not because we've shown our worth, but because he is the God who freely delights in steadfast mercy. Naomi's at the beginning of the story, not the end. Apply this briefly to the suffering Christian before we zoom over the story and run into chapter 4. Brother or sister, if you are suffering this morning, if your own heart cries out with Naomi, the Lord is done with me. Look at what he's done to me. Look at what he's brought in my life. And even if you tell me, this is what Adam's race deserves. What I feel right now is that he's done with me. His, his not, not We sing that song, I don't know if it's on our list. Our sins they are many, his mercy is more. Perhaps what you feel this morning is my sins are many and that's it. His judgments are many and his mercy is less. Brother or sister, the story's not over. It's not over for Naomi at the end of Ruth 1. The story's not over for you either. More on that later. This is the God who says in Isaiah 44, 24, after many chapters, Mike's going through the book of Isaiah, many chapters of judgment. What does he say in Isaiah 44? Thus says the Lord, your what? Your Redeemer. I will raise up their ruins. And so already in the next verse of Ruth 1, and for the next three chapters of this book, Naomi has put forward her charge. Now the Lord is going to answer Naomi's charge and reveal his glory as the one who redeems his ruined people so that he might restore us in mercy to his blessing. Look at Ruth 1.22. For a second time, the narrator tells us, Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Naomi can't see it, but the Lord is already working to provide a redeemer and to restore her to his blessing. These two seeds, Ruth and the barley harvest, will be the very means by which Israel's God fills Naomi's empty arms. This isn't a story merely about judgment. This is a story about God who restores his people through the Redeemer from the ruins of sin and judgment. This is a story that moves from death to resurrection, from lament to worship. And the restoration begins in chapter two. It begins, look at Ruth two, verse one, with a kingly man from a clan. And his name is Boaz. And he will bring the blessing. And we hear of this Boaz in verse 1, but we meet him in verse 4, where the first words out of his mouth, look at verse 4, are a blessing from the Lord. Yahweh be with you. And Ruth has gone out to glean in chapter 2, to pick up the extra grain dropped by the harvesters and left by the field's edge. The Lord had not left them emptied. In his law, Yahweh himself provided for the widow, the sojourner, the fatherless, By giving them this food from his land. And Ruth, filled with faith in his word, goes out to get it. But look at verse 3. By sheer luck, she just so happens to end up in the part of the land the Lord had entrusted to this man, Boaz, this kingly man from a Limelech's clan who brings blessing from the Lord. Boaz sees Ruth in verse 5. He speaks to her in verse 8 providing for her rights to his field, protecting her in verse 9, blessing her in verse 12. Ruth the Moabite sought refuge in Israel's God, so Boaz gives her the refuge the Lord provided in his law. Chapter 1 began with a famine, and I don't have time to go through chapter 2, but if you look at the end of chapter 2, chapter 1 begins with a famine, chapter 2 ends with what? A feast. A feast the Lord provided through this blessing-bringing man, Boaz, and the feast is just a foretaste. When Ruth says his name, Naomi's heart beats with hope. Look at verse 20. This woman who had given up hope, who had experienced affliction from the Lord's hand, is suddenly calling for blessing. May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. That man is a close relative of ours, one of our kinsmen, redeemers. Naomi hears of Boaz. She sees the fullness in Ruth's hand. This woman who at the end of chapter one had given up hope, who had said, we live in a cursed world in need of restoration and I'm beyond hope. My family's beyond restoration. Sees the food in this man's hand, hears his name and blesses the Lord who has not what? Abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. He is our kinsman redeemer. What's a redeemer? In the law, a redeemer is a male relative provided by Yahweh to restore to fullness that which had been lost, to buy back a lost inheritance, to bring back a captive or a slave, to execute justice for the oppressed, to advocate their case. The kinsman redeemer restored God's people to God's blessing from the ruins of sin and judgment. This is our God the kind of God who doesn't just judge us with the sin we deserve, but writes a redeemer into the story. Naomi thought curse had cut her family off forever. Naomi grieved what death had devoured. Naomi insisted that the Lord had left her without kindness, but in Boaz she began to see the mercy of her Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Church, for the people of God, curse never gets the final word. Curse gives way to blessing. Judgment ends in salvation. Death leads to life. Ruins result in restoration through the Redeemer who brings the Lord's blessing. Man can't keep a cut Christmas tree from dying, but the Lord delights to bring forth a shoot from a hardened stump to demonstrate his power, to magnify his mercy. In chapter 2, he had filled Naomi and Ruth with food. But more than that, he had put the Redeemer in their path to restore them to his blessing. And you know probably how the story goes from here. Just like Rebecca, Naomi plots a, 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 a plan. She, she, she proposes this, this somewhat secretive plan to Ruth for Ruth to get blessing from Boaz. I said Naomi proposes a plan, but it might be better to say Naomi plans a proposal. A marriage proposal for Ruth to Boaz in chapter 3. And Ruth listens to Naomi's plan. She goes down to the threshing floor. She uncovers Boaz's feet. She lies there. He wakes up, and what does she say? I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. It's a simple request. Make us your own and bring us back to blessing Marry me, and in marrying me, redeem us, so that you might restore us. And in Boaz, we see the heart of Christ. Boaz doesn't draw back and say, "I don't have time for you." He doesn't, like the other redeemers, say, "I, I can't do that. I might, I might, in- I might endanger my own inheritance." Boaz delights to redeem. He goes up to the town gate in chapter four. He accomplishes a legal redemption. He takes on their debts. He makes them his own. He protects their inheritance. He will raise up their ruins and restore this family from curse to blessing at great cost to himself. And finally, the birth story comes in Ruth 4, verses 13 to 17. Do you remember what Naomi had said in chapter 1? There's no sons left for me. There's no blessing in this seed. The Lord's own almighty hand has buried us beyond hope, even trying to send her daughters-in-law back to Moab. But the God of Israel is the God who raises the dead. The God who brings forth a boy from a decrepit old man and his aged barren wife. The God whose promises and purposes are so beyond what man can do or understand that all we can do is laugh. That's what the name Isaac's supposed to remind us of. He laughs. God's purposes, God's mercy, God's light in the midst of this dark world is so unbelievable, so incomprehensible by human reason that all we can do is laugh at his promises. Boaz acquires Ruth, takes her as his wife, and the sovereign Lord, look at verse 13, gave her conception and she gave birth to a son. And I hope you see the pattern here that we've been tracing for you. The barren woman, Ruth is married for 10 years in Boab. How many children does she have? None. The barren woman, the Lord's intervention, and the saving son with the emphasis on the reality that she's born of the woman. She gave birth to a son, we read. And through this infant son, just like Psalm 8 proclaims, the Lord establishes His praise. In chapter 1, Bethlehem's women greeted Naomi. Naomi replied, Stop your wonder. Don't rejoice. Mourn and wail at the bitterness of His judgment. They were silent. They don't respond. But here at the end of the story, the women respond. And what are the first words out of their mouth? Worship. Praise be to the Lord. Worship Him. Honor him. Give him joyous thanks. Declare his greatness and his wisdom and his goodness. Why? Because he has not left you this day without a redeemer. A redeemer to restore you to life. A redeemer to fill you with the Lord's own fullness after the emptiness brought by sin and judgment. Do you see here about whom the woman speak? Not Boaz the mighty father, but Obed the infant son, even declaring, look at verse 17, that in him a son had been born to Naomi, a lad just like the one she lost to fill her emptied arms. Naomi had lamented in chapter one that the Lord had left her with nothing. And look at the women's praise. They don't tell her positively what she has, do they? Why do you think that is? Because, the Lord, because Naomi had said, I'm empty. He's left me with nothing. I have no hope. It's all bitterness for me. And the woman say, Naomi, you've, you've forgotten, you've missed one simple reality, one simple reality in this world of curse and judgment that ought to bring forth hope. He has not left you without a redeemer. We live in a cursed world under judgment, a world that the Lord has justly condemned. We live in a frustrated creation where sin enslaves, darkness dominates, death devours as our natural life fades, our bodies deteriorate, and our lives empty unto death. Such a world is what we deserve. Such a world is what we choose in every sin, in every rebellion. And the best man can do is to take a Christmas tree and keep it alive for a few weeks. The book of Ruth teaches us that the Lord has not left us without a redeemer. A redeemer who can restore us to life. And so from the stump of this family tree, the Lord brings forth life. Out of Naomi's desolation, the Lord brings forth abundance. With these ruins, the Lord brings restoration and God glorifies himself as the one who redeems his people in order to restore us to blessing, all through the birth, not, not through a mighty warrior with a sword, but through the birth of an infant son named Obed in Ruth four thirteen 13-17. I know I'm at the end of my time, but let me just say this. We are not mere spectators in this story. We are not mere studiers of this book. Ruth narrates how the Lord restored a single Israelite family through the birth of a redeeming son, a greater son to a great father, a blessing-bringing son born of a faith-filled servant mother. But the last lines of this book reveal that this small narrative about the past promises a glorious future. The book ends not with Naomi's name but with whose. David's. The hints have been there all along, won't go into them now. But this book is a book about the Davidic promises, about the son God promised to David. Just as the Lord restored David's ruins house in the past before David, so too the book proclaims the Lord will do it again. This is Isaiah 11.1. 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch for his roots shall bear fruit. In Genesis, we learn that God's saving son would be Eve's serpent-crushing seed, Abraham's blessing-bringing offspring, Isaac's lesser son, Jacob's family, Judah's lion. In Ruth, through the birth of Obed, we get an even clearer picture. The son would be a redeemer in David's line, who mercifully restores us from the ruins of sin and judgment to God's blessing. This is the gospel, the good news that Christmas proclaims. We live in a cursed world in need of restoration, but church, he has not left us this day without a redeemer through whom he has restored us to his blessing, through whom he will make all things new. In the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, the true and greater Obed has come. He is the redeeming son who entered this cursed creation to restore God's sinful and ruined people to God's eternal kingdom blessing. Let me end with a final application. The book is about Naomi's emptiness and her fullness. We know from the book we know from the whole narrative of scripture, Matthew 1 is going to pick up the genealogy and show us that what God was doing through Naomi's suffering and emptiness. Naomi's emptied. By the end of her story, what does she know? She knows that a son has been born to her. Does she know that this son, this grandson, will become the grandfather of King David? No. Does she know that through all of her emptying and suffering... God was working to bring about the Redeemer? No. It's not just that Ruth 1 is not the end of Naomi's story. It's also that Ruth 4 is not the end of her story. She, at the end of Ruth 4, had gotten a little bit of understanding about what God was doing through her suffering, why he had emptied her. He had emptied her to give her Obed. But I would think she died never understanding the full significance of Obed, never understanding the fullness the Lord would bring from her emptiness. Brothers and sisters, look around. We are the fullness the Lord has brought from Naomi's emptiness. She said, my family has nothing left. We're a dead end. The narrative ends with Obed born, a little shoot from the stump. But one day, when the Lord Jesus returns, when the dead are raised, Naomi will look at you she will look at me and she'll say, this is what the Lord brought from my emptiness? These are my children through the Redeemer that came from my line? This is what he was doing all along? I had no idea. Brother or sister, you're suffering this morning. You're wondering, why? Why has the Lord brought such affliction into my life? Biblical answer isn't to say he's not sovereign, set those things aside, it's not him. The biblical answer is to look to the resurrection and to say I might not understand today, but today is coming when I will see not only how the Lord has filled me through every wound and every grief in the Redeemer, but how he has worked through my suffering, through my affliction to bring a restoration in Christ. That's too great for me to imagine. So I say to you from Second Corinthians 4, listen to this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For these light and momentary afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. say this morning, these afflictions don't seem light and momentary. Brother or sister, just wait. Be patient in affliction, rejoice in hope, be constant in prayer. And just like Naomi, when the Lord returns, the sufferings of today will seem light in comparison to the glory he has produced in the restoring Redeemer through your suffering. Let's pray.